I'm Ann Vandersteel, and welcome to the Zelenko Report, where truth and God are taking down the tyranny of our time. Today on the Zelenko Report, extreme heat. This is in the continuation of our 9-11 series, our fifth in the series that we are doing with Richard Gage of richardgage911.org. Did extreme heat play a role in the destruction of the Twin Towers as well as Building 7, that fateful day. We're going to take a deep dive into that. There is some direct evidence. We've been reviewing the explosive evidence, meaning was there explosives and incendiary devices that were used in the destruction of the Twin Towers? We're going to go into that and we're going to talk about the official narrative and how the extreme heat actually did play a role, but was it caused by what the government said was the root cause. You're going to want to tune in because this show is getting better and better every week as we take a deeper dive on the 9-11 demise, the fateful day in which we lost 3,000 souls between New York City, the Pentagon, and Shanksville, Pennsylvania. Buckle up, Richard Gage up next. Well, ladies and gentlemen, it's Friday, and I know you've been waiting for bated breath for the return of Richard Gage of richardgage911.org, where we have been every Friday now for the past, this is our fifth Friday, in fact, past month, we've been talking about 9-11, that horrific day. Well, today we're going to go into more debunking because we've now explored the direct evidence so much of an potentially not the narrative they've been feeding us, but more of an explosive destruction, a takedown of Building 7. And of course, looking at the Twin Towers, seeing the same characteristics there, which basically blows holes in the official narrative, uh, which is why Richard has you know, been painstakingly studying this for so many years, because he's putting together enough evidence for a true grand jury investigation, as we're going to see in his crime scene to courtroom uh, feature movie on all of this that has been, uh, you know, unfolding before our eyes. So we're going to today, I guess, dive into extreme heat, Richard. Could that possibly explain, or you know, could we poke some more holes in their official narrative of what really happened on nine eleven? Let's uh, yeah. let's take a gander into your world, shall we? Okay, let's go right there. Uh, without further ado, because I've got a lot to share with our audience today, and uh, this is a an, an amazing. Uh, set of evidence, uh, as you indicated, none of which can be explained in the official narrative. So uh, last week <clears throat> in deep dive number four, we looked at the explosive evidence in the Twin Towers. <clears throat> Excuse me. And we, we looked at a sudden onset of destruction of both of these towers no jolting or hesitation, just straight down. We, we looked at ex, uh, uh, evidence uh, and eyewitnesses of explosions and flashes of light, 156 first responders. We looked at the straight down symmetrical collapse. Uh, that is to say, in, in, after the first four seconds where the top part of the each of these towers, the top block has been uh, just systematically uh, liquefied and then it t- telescopes straight down into its, its own footprint. Uh, well, outside its own footprint, actually, uh, distributing four-ton, eight-ton structural steel sections laterally at 600 feet in every direction. Uh, We looked at the isolated explosive ejections called squibs in the controlled demolition industry. We looked at how fast the building was coming down, a near freefall acceleration straight down through the path of what should have been the greatest resistance 
80,000 tons or so of structural steel beneath the point of jet plane impacts, which should have arrested any uh, initiating collapse. We looked at the total shattering of the structural steel frame all the way down to the ground. And again, outside the footprint so that 100,000 tons of structural steel wasn't even available to crush the building, nor was 80,000 tons of concrete in 90,000 in each of these buildings uh, available because it available to crush the building because it was pulverized and sent laterally out of the towers. We looked at the lateral ejection. Uh, we found that gravity works down, not out. So uh, what could be responsible? Well, we found that it was an explosive force that was also pulverizing uh, 90,000 tons of concrete to a fine powder and spread over a three square mile area of lower Manhattan. So we found that all of this was indeed a direct evidence of explosive destruction and that fire and uh, even uh, jet plane impacts and some broken columns uh, in each of the towers from them uh, cannot possibly explain the evidence that we were looking at last week nor this week. So we talked about getting the evidence to a grand jury in a series, a film series of uh, placing all of this evidence systematically with 20 experts also uh, testifying uh, in front of the grand jury, because we will submit this film series to the grand jury and they will have the opportunity, especially if we have our way in court. This is the Supreme court of the United States, which we have, uh, asked to enforce our First Amendment right uh, to not only give this evidence in 60 exhibits, as has, but as has been done by the Lawyers Committee for 9-11 Inquiry, uh, uh, but to actually initiate a special grand jury investigation. And uh, that's going to be uh, in a conference this January 6th, in just a week, uh, before the Supreme Court, and they'll decide whether to hear that case. And indeed, only it only takes four Supreme Court justices right. to weigh in to hear a case. You know you about know, that, Richard? Uh, January 6th is a big day. That's the uh, Raylan Brunson case as well. There's a lot wow. happening. And isn't it odd that it's January 6th? What are the odds of that? <laughs> That's very interesting. <laughs> yeah. We, well, we're, we're both going to be, uh, I guess we can't watch, but we can wait for the results and hope that they will hear these uh, critically important cases for our freedom in this country. So what we, where we, where we stopped last week in our deep dive number four, we pick up in our deep dive number five, is there evidence of persistent and extreme heat unaccountable for in the official narrative? And indeed, we jump right in with Massimo Mazzucco's 9-11 uh, New Pearl Harbor. He's a famous Italian director who picked up 9-11 Truth big time in a five-hour a DVD set that's on the website um, at richardgage911.org. But let's look at this little piece of it because it'll blow you away. Possibly the most important unexplained phenomenon at Ground Zero are the extremely high temperatures registered under the rubble for many weeks after the collapses. On September 16, NASA shot these thermographic images of Ground Zero, indicating unusually high temperatures at the base of the three collapsed buildings. Despite the heavy rains of September 14th, the hotspots registered peak temperatures of more than 1,300 degrees under the rubble. 
Ten days later, the fires kept burning. What's to explain, Governor, the smoke that still comes out There's of the still, fire? There's still fire down below. There is such an incredibly deep pile of rubble, and the, the tower goes down five, six stories underground. But we had uh, ABC uh, crews come back just in the last few minutes and telling us there are still flames coming out of the base of the trade towers. For the rescue workers, this became an additional burden on their already gruesome task. Out still on the rubble, it's still, uh, I believe, 1,100 degrees. The guy's boots just melt within a few hours. On October 8th, the hot spots under the three collapsed buildings remained clearly visible. Six weeks later, as the excavations progressed, the situation seemed only to get worse. Oh, it's unbelievable. And this is six weeks later, almost six weeks later. And as we get closer to the center of this, it gets hotter and hotter. It's probably 1,500 degrees. We've had some small windows into um, what we thought was a core at some point, and it looked like a, uh, an oven. You know, it was just roaring inside. And it's just a bright, bright reddish-orange color. The consequences of such extreme temperatures were quite visible on the steel that was being extracted from the rubble. Where the grapplers were, were pulling stuff out, uh, big sections of iron that were literally on fire on the other end. They would hit the air and burst into flames, which was uh, pretty spooky to see. You would create an air pocket by moving steel, fueling the fires underground. But you know, these underground fires were just uh, like the fires of hell. If you could make a video of what you perceive hell to look like from fire shooting up at times, that's what would happen. You would be in the middle of what would look like steel, and then fire just would pop up. Firemen were coming out with an iron worker with their boots literally melting, and then the hose would come over and they would try to put that part out. I got there. Charlie Vitchers was a supervisor of removal operations at Ground Zero. From PBS's America Rebuilds page, we read, Vitcher's crew picked up 40 to 60 foot long pieces of steel impaled in the pile, where the bottom 20 feet would be glowing red hot. Vitcher said, trucks loaded with steel would pass by and you could feel the back of your neck burning standing 20 feet away. In an article called A Dangerous Worksite, the U.S. Department of Labor wrote, underground fires burned at temperatures of 2,000 degrees Fahrenheit. This was confirmed by Mayor Giuliani. There were fires of 2,000 degrees Fahrenheit below the ground. The Journal of the American Society of Safety Engineers wrote, thermal measurements taken by helicopter each day showed underground temperatures ranging from 400 to more than 2,800 degrees Fahrenheit. Eight weeks later, and the fires still had not subsided. You see how this debris is still smoking? That's when the fires that are still burning. Eight weeks later, we still got fires burning. So, I mean, these things are burning. At one point, I think they were about 2,800 degrees. Eleven weeks later, and the fires kept burning. As recently as the end of November, it was still 1,100 degrees down underneath the rubble. As November turned into December, ice was noticed in the mornings above the ground. But the debris underneath was still smoldering. The weird thing was it was very cold when we were up there. I believe it was, it was in the middle of the winter. But the ground wasn't frozen. The ground kind of like bubbled underneath your feet, which was kind of strange to me. It took until December 19, more than three months after the collapses, for the last underground fire to be extinguished. Well, we would expect to see an incredible heat source to account for all of this evidence, Anne. So right. what we've got instead is uh, fires that are diminished at the time of the collapse. 
indicated by the thick black smoke, they're cooler fires that are oxygen starved. And surely these fires would be extinguished by the mechanical action of the collapsing buildings. So what could possibly be responsible? Uh, they said a, a, a little river of steel flowing. Who, who says this? The structural engineer himself of the World Trade Center, Leslie Robertson. A little river of steel flowing? We can see what Charlie Vitchers was talking about with metal dripping out of the steel beam held uh, from the material held in the claws uh, of this crab claw excavator. Uh, metal dripping from a beam, molten steel beams to human remains. We wouldn't expect to see steel melted. But again, this uh, uh, firefighter. It says it's the spookiest thing that he ever saw, uh, th this material. We can tell the temperature of the molten material by its color. We're exceeding 2,500 degrees Fahrenheit. Guess Richard, what? We've talked about this before. Excuse the interruption, but you know the World Trade Center Seven had fires that were burning. Other exactly. buildings uh, had fires that was burning. There was another building recently uh, overseas that was burning it. I think it was in China, and had the Chinese telecommunications company in there. And that was a forty-seven story building. It didn't collapse from the entire building being engulfed in raging flames and an inferno. How do you get to these temperatures? Because that's not ordinary for a building to burn at that level and steel shouldn't be melting. I mean, this is just not normal. The hottest fires are about a thousand degrees, sometimes 1500 degrees, normally about five or 600 degrees Fahrenheit. So we have a real problem here, right? You, right. you highlighted it. We're three to four times what can even be accountable for in a fire, even with jet fuel, which, according to its manufacturer, ME Petroleum, burns only at about 600 degrees Fahrenheit uh, uh, in open air. So we have a real problem. I didn't even know concrete could melt, but here's evidence in the police museum near the World Trade Center today showing concrete that melted uh, fire temperatures so intense that concrete melted like lava around everything in its path, like this handgun in World Trade Center 6, which was also quite uh, a problem, uh, as we mentioned in our, our webinar, which is even more detail, if you can imagine, than the series that uh, we've embarked on here uh, today. So let's look and see what might be accountable for these temperatures. Could thermite have produced all that molten metal? And what is thermite anyway? An incendiary used by the military, thermite is a compound of iron oxide and aluminum, which when ignited sustains an extreme heat reaction, creating molten iron. In just two seconds, thermite can reach temperatures over 4,500 degrees Fahrenheit, quite enough to liquefy steel. We know that open-air fires cannot burn hot enough to melt steel, but metal had melted at the base of the towers. Appendix C of the FEMA report describes sulfur residues on the World Trade Center steel. The New York Times called this the deepest mystery of all. Sulfur slightly lowers the melting point of iron, and iron oxide and iron sulfide had formed on the surface of the structural steel. Sulfur used with thermite is called thermate, 
producing even faster results. Wow. So maybe we're getting here somewhere mm -hmm. uh, now because if thermite were used, it would explain the intense uh, temperatures because it exceeds 4,000 degrees as it's ignited. Maybe is it there, would explain. Uh-huh. Um, so is there anything to be said with respect to the DOD having mentioned uh, under Rumsfeld they were missing $2.3 uh, trillion dollars? just before the entire attack at the World Trade Center. And we're talking about military-grade thermite potentially being an uh, applicable substance that could have brought down the buildings and burned and melted steel. Yeah, let's see. Because as we look at this, uh, if thermite were used, it would also explain the the sulfur. Because sulfur is added to thermite, it becomes thermate, much more yeah. uh, efficient at cutting through steel. And it would also explain the elemental iron that's iron that is molten. Uh, th that's that's the temperatures, 4,000 degrees, but elemental iron. We haven't used iron in our skyscrapers for over 100 years. Where is all of this elemental iron coming from uh, that we're going to be seeing a lot of evidence for in just a minute? So we've got to ask ourselves, um, what do we have evidence of, of thermite? Well, um, the NFPA 921 National Fire Protection Association Guide for fire and explosion investigation, it says look for unusual residues that could arise from thermite or other pyrotechnic materials. NIST says they found no corroborating evidence to suggest that explosives were used. But they admit, again, uh, a year later, they did not test for the presence of explosive residues. Convenient. Again, you probably won't find what you're unwilling to look for. Others did, though, and guess what? One of them was a nuclear physicist formerly from Brigham, Brigham Young University, Dr. Stephen Jones. He says, well, if thermite were used, you'd expect a characteristic burn pattern, a white, yellow, hot liquid metal, like we see pouring out of the South Tower minutes prior to its collapse. He says, and like we see <laughs> pouring out of the crab claw excavators, uh, you'd also expect to see uh, a whitish cloud of aluminum oxide ash, like you see rising from this material pouring out of the South Tower, and like you see uh, trailing these four and eight ton structural steel sections. Let's go back to forward to, wait a minute, is steel sections flammable? No. Not under ordinary conditions, maybe in a blast furnace, maybe if the ends of them were ignited uh, with and laced with thermite, uh, that's a possibility. But fires don't catch steel on fire. It's not combustible. And we have thousands of these in each of these towers, upward, outward, arching uh, streamers uh, trailing these thick white smoke clouds. It looks more like the volcanic eruption in the Tongan Sea with freely flying solid objects that are molten and trailing these clouds. Mm -hmm. So some of these steel beams ended up in sculptures. Some of the sculptors ended up sending it to Dr. Stephen Jones. He does X-ray fluorescence analysis, uh, which is XEDS, uh, X, X, excuse me, X-ray energy dispersive spectroscopy analysis. Oh, what does he find on these beams? Manganese, sulfur, aluminum, iron, the key ingredients of thermite. 
in the slag at the end from the end of the beam sent to him by the sculptor. Well, let's look at some of these beams. Here's the iron workers cut cleanly through these beams with hot thermal lances. But some of the beams got something else like this, which is not what oxyacetylene torches or thermal lances do to these beams by the iron workers. So we have uh, a, a, an analysis of the end of these beams and we just looked at it, but also we have photos from the site showing these classic 45 degree cuts on the steel beams with thick slag pouring off of it. This is not what fire or collapses do to beams. And we have uh, dozens uh, of examples of these cut beams down at the bottom of the site. Well, guess what? You can cut beams with your own thermite uh, cutter charges in your backyard, like John Cole, civil engineer, does did in Florida. And this is what happened. almost cleanly through that beam was reduced and what he what he finds is that the the ends the the damage to the beam mimics exactly the damage to the beams that are analyzed in the metallurgical examination by FEMA and put into appendix C in 2002 in their building performance assessment team report that came out in May of that year a one inch column reduced to half inch thickness, its edges curled like a paper scroll, thinned to almost razor sharpness. So that's exactly what he found in his own thermite cutter charge experiment. Wow. Well, it gets even more. Oh, yeah, wow is right. Because especially when you look at what the U.S. Geological Survey finds in all of their analysis of the Dust. It's actually mostly powdered concrete, interestingly, uh, that spread throughout a, a three square mile area there in a blanket three inches thick. Well, in 2005, they released their report. What did they find? Millions of previously molten. How did they get molten? That's 2,800 degrees. Iron. How did they get iron? We don't use iron in our skyscrapers. This is elemental iron not alloy of steel microspheres. How do they get spherical? So we got three mysteries in every sample that the U S geological survey has analyzed. And they, they find that they're up to 6% of many of these samples is composed of these molten previously molten iron microspheres. They amount mounts by extrapolation up to four tons throughout the World Trade Center dust, and they don't even know where they came from. They don't guess even. In fact, Richard, I'm going to stop you right there. We're up on a hard break, and this oh. is getting really, really good <laughs> because I have a question. So when we come back, I'm going to lead off with my question on some on some feedback I've gotten from viewers that have been watching this series with bated breath. We're with Richard Gage of richardgage911.org. Stick with us because we're going to continue to peel back this onion. And uh, ladies and gentlemen, we are getting somewhere with this. And this is where you're going to play a role as well. We'll be right back after this quick break. 
And welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. I have to say uh, my apologies to Richard for interrupting him in the middle of a sentence, but uh, I, I lost track of the time myself. We are here with Richard Gage of richardgage911.org, and we are peeling back this onion on heat, extreme heat that was found at the bottom of the World Trade Center for weeks, weeks and weeks and weeks, fires still burning after the buildings had come down and collapsed. Why is that? Well, the evidence is pointing towards thermite or thermate, which would be which would create the molten steel and some of the most extraordinary things that look more like akin to a volcanic eruption than an actual building implosion. Uh, Richard, when we last left off, you had made a compelling argument and we were getting into the technicals of it. But I did receive an email from somebody who was concerned about nuclear detonation at the base of the buildings to create this heat that had been going on for months and months. I think you've just made a very good case as to why it wasn't that. Do we ever have evidence of radiation poisoning of any of the people in cleanup? Uh, some some claim that that there is. Uh, what we're going to do now is look at the evidence uh, that we do have, okay. uh, very clear forensic evidence uh, of something else. So then we can come back then and compare the evidence of each of these theories uh, that have been put forth. Uh, because uh, in, in the case of the U.S. Geological Survey's dust, uh, they, they, they don't uh, find um uh, what they do find is evidence of thermite as we've been as we left off uh last uh, <clears throat> segment we have uh, evidence of of four tons of previously molten iron microspheres and we were just about to explain that the RJ Lee group international environmental consulting firm uh engineers uh they they also analyzed these and found these curious previously molten iron microspheres, just like the USG did, USGS did. These aren't conspiracy theorists. These are U.S. agencies and independent, internationally renowned uh, firms that uh, document very carefully, uh, in this case by R.J. Lee Group, that these are formed during the event, not before by the iron workers, uh, the welders putting the building together. Not afterward by the iron workers cutting the, the building apart, but uh, four tons is, is yeah, by extrapolation is a, a lot of material. So where did it come from? Well, let's just do a controlled experiment and see where they might have come from. This is thermite, a small amount uh, in, in this experiment uh, under controlled conditions. Don't try this at home. Uh, we see what are sparks in this ignition of, of 4,000 degree temperatures producing what? Molten iron spheres that cool and fall into the pan. So these are, these are, this is not uh, uh, ash. These are actual spheres. Well, how do they get to be spherical? Well, liquid that's aerosolized becomes spherical by its surface tension. So that's just what happens in the case of molten iron under explosive conditions that creates an aerosolized condition. So you have this molten iron falling all over the, the World Trade Center uh, in these tiny droplets. Could that be what's accounting for the toasting of the tops of these cars that were parked in and around the World Trade Center? I mean, what other uh, theory? can possibly explain in this very hot event. Some describe this as a very cold event. This is obviously not cold. We've been looking at evidence that's convinced 36 
hundred architects and engineers to sign a petition demanding a new investigation. Uh, many of which appear in the film to be given to the grand jury uh, on, uh, well, very soon when we complete it, we're working on it right now. People can actually help us co-produce this film. We've uh, filmed in at the Supreme Court. We filmed in the conference room with the experts uh, and we're taking it there. But one of the key pieces of evidence that we're taking there is also Forensic evidence found in all of this World Trade Center dust found uh, across uh, from river to river across lower Manhattan. Seven samples together collected from, for instance, this apartment building across the street from the South Tower, which its windows blew in with the explosive uh, hmm. demolition of those buildings and filled her apartment full of this dust in the dust, which she sent to uh, uh, this team of international scientists led by Niels Harrett in Copenhagen. He ends up uh, documenting in all their samples, they find these curious red-gray chips, red on one side, gray on the other. They thought they were paint. But guess what? They're attracted by a magnet. They have extremely high iron content. So mm -hmm. they go, wow, well, that's not paint. Let's do some analysis. They do, again, XEDS analysis, and they find that the red layer is composed of iron and aluminum. What's that? That's the key ingredients of thermite, iron oxide, and aluminum powders. Whoa, they, what's that doing in the paint? They get really curious. They zoom in 50,000 times on the red layer here, and they find nano-sized particles of iron oxide crystals in rhomboidal shapes and aluminum platelets also nano size that's a thousand times smaller than the diameter of a human hair mm. this doesn't happen by accident it doesn't happen by rust which is iron oxide and aluminum particles mixing in the air on the way down to the ground, for instance, as has been speculated by NIST, the National Institute of Standards and Technology, who was actually tasked by Congress to explain these collapses to the American people. We have a real problem here. <laughs> these nano-sized particles are set in a bed of oxygen, silica, and carbon. Uh, this is organic material that's actually responsible for the expansion of gas in TNT and RDX, high-energy explosives. That's what knocks things over. Incendiaries work by means of heat. Uh, they, they destroy um, steel and, and things like that. Um, but when engineered here, interestingly, uh, uh, they can be engineered to become more explosive at the small scale. In fact, there's been previous uh, peer-reviewed literature on this material, which they call super thermite or nano thermite <clears throat> at about a 420 degrees Celsius, about 758 uh, uh, Fahrenheit, they ignite producing much more energy uh, than paint, which doesn't do this whatsoever. Um, this is very special material. They prove that it's uh, exothermic reaction, indicating that it's essentially thermitic reaction now what happens when they ignite they produce what molten iron microspheres 
with the same chemical signature as the molten iron microspheres produce uh, when uh, found by the USGS and, and R.J. Lee. So guess what? We know exactly where those molten iron microspheres came from. As if we didn't know, they're found attached to partially ignited red-gray chips, as we see here and here uh, in, these, in these photos uh, from these experiments. So what happens when you reduce particles to the nanoscale uh, thermitic particles, iron oxide, aluminum powder, you, the surface volume increases exponentially. So yeah. you engineered a, 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 an incendiary to become more uh, uh, explosive. This is not made in a cave in Afghanistan. And this, this <laughs> is made only in the most advanced defense contracting laboratories. And what they conclude at the end of this 25-page peer-reviewed paper in the Bentham Open Chemical Physics Journal, the red layer is active, unreacted thermitic material incorporating nanotechnology. It's a highly energetic pyrotechnic. So this peer-reviewed paper has been uh, published now since 2009. It's not been challenged. The way to challenge a peer-reviewed paper is to publish your own peer-reviewed paper. And that has not been done. People wave their hands in the air and say, oh, oh, that's just paint. Well, we just proved that it's not just paint. Can we prove where it came from? Uh, probably. It's, it's not, as I, as I mentioned, from a cave in Afghanistan. Could it have been put into the towers before, in the months before 9-11, for instance, in the pre-9-11 fireproofing upgrades that happened coincidentally in the towers adjacent uh, and encompassing the point at which the jet planes impacted each tower uh 30 stories How convenient low. yeah 30 stories low in the case of the uh, the south tower this is all uh shown by kevin ryan in his detailed research another 19 suspects uh, which uh he he finds uh uh, cause uh, to be investigated. You know, I have to say this much, and I received an email on this as well. It is really suspicious that people who were trained, actually a lot of them down here in Florida, uh, some of the flight schools that I was at recently with one of my kids, who's becoming a pilot, um, that they were able to, with simulators, fly these planes into the buildings with such precision. And Arguably, this slide right here shows you they had to come in where they were, you know, doing these uh, fireproofing upgrades is what they called it. But wouldn't that be interesting that the same area that you're talking about upgrading for fireproofing also happened to be where they potentially could have applied nanothermite, which is showing yeah. an evidence in peer, in peer reviewed papers that there was evidence of, na of nanothermite military grade, you know, pyrotechnic explosive <laughs> all around the building and in apartments across the street. This is really quite extraordinary don't you think yeah, i'm sure you I, do but it's cause for an investigation every one of these pieces of evidence forensic absolutely. testimony i mean it's it's incredible is it just a coincidence hardly these were the only fireproofing upgrades in the towers i mean it, it it's incredible so was there a real investigation by nist this is one of our key parallels of course between 9 11 and COVID. Uh, and and 
Obviously not, because if there was, they would have found the 10 key characteristic and very uncharacteristic, as we just saw, features uh, amounting to controlled demolition, direct evidence of destruction by explosives, and in today's case, incendiaries. Uh, so we've got, uh, with additional circumstantial corroborative evidence and testimony, enough uh, evidence for proof, we believe, of controlled demolition a body of proof that now 3,600 architects and engineers are demanding evidence uh, 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 of to go to a special grand jury, which, again, we are doing uh, with the help of all of our, our, uh, our supporters who want to see a real grand jury investigation, who want to see this evidence uh, getting into uh, the court. Uh, so it, it, that evidence you can get, by the way, free just download it from our website richardgage911.org in the form of this brochure which you can print a hundred of and give them out uh, to your friends and tabling on the sidewalk we're encouraging everybody to do something you can email it to everybody on your list particularly architects and engineers uh, in your community uh, your elected representatives mm -hmm. and of course the media who are likely to um, be aroused. <laughs> they, they're more likely, likely to ignore it for a while until they get uh, so much uh, right. uh, evidence. Uh, but we have to dig a little deeper. I mean, are there direct parallels between these society-changing events? Uh, again, parallel number one, when events are planned like this, and we people know about it in advance. So when we come back uh, in deep dive number six uh, next week, we're going to be looking at foreknowledge. What did people know about the collapse of the towers? Uh, collapse in quotes, uh, the destruction of the towers more uh, accurately in advance. Uh, did people know about uh, parallel uh, number one uh, uh, in the case of? of COVID also. Uh, so we're, we're going to be diving uh, deep into these parallels one through 12. Uh, and it'll take us the, the next couple of episodes. This is quite the deep dive, which I'm encouraging everybody to, to join us in. <laughs> well, I, I have to say, Richard, uh, this, this series is so compelling. And I think right now, this is probably the right time. I know we all wanted answers back in 2001, I, I was devastated. My sister was working down there. She had to walk from Southern Manhattan all the way up to the George Washington Bridge just to get out of Manhattan that day, covered wow. in dust. She was supposed to be in the South Tower that day, as a matter of fact, at a conference on the 102nd floor. Uh, instead, she wow. sent one of her brand new employees there because she'd been to the conference the year before she worked in, uh, in finance. Anyway, uh, she made employee? it out alive. Pardon me? No, she did. She yeah, made it yeah. Out. she made it out alive. But, you know, my I have friends uh, who perished that day. We all do. We all know people. Um, the stories are extraordinary. They're endless, endless stories. So um, and there's just so much still mystery. But this series, I think, is just so compelling to getting people to ask more questions and start to demand answers. The key is right now, and this is the challenge we're facing, Richard, is how do we get our public servants, which really are employees of the corporation, to actually stand up and defend the oath of the Constitution, which is our document to protect us from a tyrannical government and to protect our rights as given by God? Um, and we have yet to be able to really see that uh, 
manifest itself. It's particularly in today, look what just happened with Carrie Lake and that lawsuit that judge sort of gave her a little pat on the head. Yeah, I'll hear your evidence. I'm only going to hear two two different pieces of it. I've thrown out eight, but I'll listen to two key points of evidence and I'm still going to dismiss the case and Katie Hobbs will be governor of uh, Arizona. Good luck. Kick the can to the Supreme Court. You have We just talked. We have a lot riding on January 6th in the Supreme Court now, right? So we're talking about, you know, next week's going to be a big week, whether or not the Brunson case actually gets put on the docket to be heard. They're going to vote on that. And uh, this evidentiary case that's going before them as well to be also, will it be heard? Um, I'm a little skeptical right now, but I think it's going to be a push from we the people, which is why this documentary is so important that we get people engaged and asking questions, but also supporting it so that you can provide this evidentiary a film to a grand jury so that once and for all the people's grand jury will then hold those responsible accountable. And uh, this, these are the questions that need to be asked. I mean, are, are you hopeful for the ability for the American people to actually stand back up again and govern themselves at this point so we can get well, answers to these questions? I see an awakening uh, that's happening. Uh, and thank goodness to those of you who are the truth tellers uh, on the COVID side. Uh, People are, are are realizing that you know uh, the, the the jab, which was supposed to prevent transmission, now admittedly doesn't. That's a huge wake up call for people who are hearing that information. They're not hearing it in, on the mainstream media. Uh, the, the jab has incredibly dangerous side effects, uh, maiming and killing people in numbers uh, that the life insurance uh, industry has has acknowledged a 40% uh, uh, increase in, in, in deaths. Uh, that, that's astounding what they're finding in the veins of, of people. It, it, that information is getting out. What they're finding in the Pfizer vaccines that themselves, uh, graphene oxide and other more dangerous self-replicating technologies, uh, extremely uh, disturbing, and, and, and people share this information. So this is why we cross-pollinate with the, one of the reasons we cross pollinate with the 911 with the uh, 9 with the covid truth movement because when they on top of all of that get uh the truth about 911 and they go oh my god i thought it was 19 fundamentalist hijackers who broke a few columns started some fires and caused the collapse of these towers and i didn't even know about the third tower uh they get the wake up call now 2 plus 2 uh the, these these events uh, cascade in terms of public awareness. And we, so we need to tell them, which is what we're doing here, uh, about 9-11 and this forensic eye, and eyewitness testimony uh, and forensic evidence. Uh, it, it's it's irrefutable. You can't unhear it. All of a sudden, you've taken this red pill along right. with the COVID red pill, and, and you're done. You can't resist anymore. Your cognitive dissonance um, has has increased to the explosion point like mine did in 2006 when I became aware of 9/11 uh and and all of a sudden uh I can't trust anything my government is, is telling me anymore and and almost every conspiracy theory that we we've come across turns out to be true I mean it, this is a huge awakening so yes I have a whole lot of hope do you, do you hold any, because I have received so many different emails from folks. Uh, one of the questions that they had was uh, with respect to a demolition plan needing to be submitted to the city of New York 
as a requirement for the building plans for all the towers, the Twin Towers 1 and 2, Building 7, et cetera. Um, they, this particular uh, source talks about, you know, digging a big shaft 50 meters down, et cetera. Would that be appropriate in submitting building plans that a demolition plan would actually be submitted at the same time in order to get no, permitted? Th- th- this is never done. Um, and, and this is a speculation or an assertion that uh, I have not seen evidence for, and I have been looking for it because it's kind of been out there as a rumor uh, for 17 years uh, since I began this process. There's been no evidence. And I ask, and I'm asking now publicly, openly, uh, let's see the evidence of a demolition plan in, in the first place or one that was required. Um, we we don't know that. And, and you don't plant um, this is another rumor out there planting explosives in the towers, you know, when they're built so that they can be brought down in the event of some kind of impending doom or collapse or something that's not done. No insurance company would insure a building with explosives in it. No tenants would occupy it if it got out. Um, we also have a theory out there that uh, from Dmitry Kalazov, uh, who um, uh, is a nuclear engineer, but he's proposed this theory that the towers were brought down uh, by nuclear explosion. So uh, what he's saying is that the the, uh, the that there was a nuclear weapon, a, a mini nuclear weapon, if you will, uh, which we don't know about publicly, but apparently the technology has increased, and I don't doubt that. But what he says is that the explosion, the radiation is contained largely underground and that this somehow this um, this vertically rising explosion goes all the way up to the point of jet plane impacts, which are different in each of the towers. And then and only then uh, explodes out, not before Mm -hmm. by the uh, gypsum uh, through the gypsum board, which is only couple inches thick uh, or so in in the hoist elevator hoistways, which could easily be blown out. But then it it blows up at the top and then comes down. Um, So that is uh, the theory, and it makes no sense to those of us who have studied it. Well, Richard, uh, you are have been a student of this, as you said, for 17 years, and you are uh, highly, highly intellectual. You are extremely smart. You have put together a compelling body of evidence thus far. You have me on the edge of my seat. I can't wait till next Friday. Mm -hmm. Uh, Until then, we're going to turn the clock over to 2023. And uh, with any hope at all, we're going to finally get to the truth of the matter on not only 9-11, but a lot of other information, which, you know, we have to give a hat tip to Elon. The Twitter files are good, but we need more. We need a whole lot more. So, folks, I encourage you to go to richardgage911.org. Please support. Become a producer in this movie. You can have a hand in history in exposing the truth, and uh, this will result in a grand jury witnessing and watching the evidence as you have seen unfold here, but in a documentary more neatly packaged so that we can finally get the investigations necessary to bring those responsible to justice so that 3,000 lives did not die in vain, because at this point, they're still uh, laying in state in vain. We've never really gotten the truth. Richard Gage with 9-11, richardgage911.org. Thank you so much and happy new year. Happy new year. We'll see you in deep dive number six. Number six coming up next Friday.